Well, Happy New Year to you. 2020. Hard to believe, isn't it? Just, uh, I was telling somebody the other day, this is how you know you're old. A lot of ways you know you're old, especially when you wake up in the morning. But one of the ways you know you're old is you need a light when you, what you're going to do without today. All right. I was thinking about 2020, another decade. I started looking back, thinking about my personal existence on planet Earth. Began in the 50s, the 1950s, not the 1850s. But this is my eighth decade on planet Earth. And you're, you know what you're thinking right now? He really is old. I thought that already, but now I know for sure he is. Uh, if you need a copy of God's Word, slip your hand up, and Jim or Chris will be glad to give it to you. You could turn to Psalm 115. I'll explain why in a moment. Psalm 115. I love Bill. If you don't know Bill, you need to meet him. Uh, Bill has the gift of encouragement. I love my brother, uh, this special man. Think about that song that, that Darren was singing about fear. And the one thing Satan wants for children of God, Christians, believers, is, is to fear. It's to be un- ineffective for the kingdom of God because you're afraid Whatever it might be, to step out of your comfort zone, afraid of your circumstances, afraid of what someone might think, uh, fear of whatever it might be. And I think I shared this with you as we were going through during the Christmas season, where the angel says, fear not, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And that phrase of some form, do not be afraid or fear not, is in the Bible 365 times. I hope that catches your attention. God doesn't do things by accident. And so he reminds us, every day I'm where? Look at the title of your, on your handout for today. What does it say at the top? I didn't even look. Did we get the right one? See, Rhiannon doesn't make mistakes. Randy makes mistakes. Rhiannon does not. Where's your God? I've been reminded graphically again this week that my God is in the middle of my circumstances. We're going to talk about that over the next, I'll share why in a moment. Uh, Thinking about a new year, a new decade. I was shaving this morning and I always listen to different preachers when I'm shaving, uh, getting ready in the morning. And this is a guy that's been around for a long, this sermon was actually preached in 1971 that I was listening to today. And I was a junior in high school in 1971. He's preaching about how is 1972 going to be any different? And I'm thinking, well, I could tell you how it was different for me and. Graduated from high school and went to college and got engaged. And a lot of cool things happened in 1972 to me. But he was talking about 1972, and he was talking about making New Year's resolutions. How many of you, let's be honest, make New Year's resolutions? Yeah, he was, what this preacher was saying, which is about why he said, I quit making them a long time ago because I knew I wasn't going to keep it anyway. So what, what's the point of making it? And here was his point, part of one of the points in the message that really hit home for me, was he was saying, as 
believers, what we're interested in in our lives, what God is interested in in our lives is reformation, not resolutions. Not, I'm going to do better, I'm going I'm to do this, I'm going to do that. He wants your life totally transformed through the person of Jesus Christ, and you're a new creation, new creature. Old things are passed away, all things are become new, and then live out your life under Christ. Rather than making New Year's resolutions and then not living up to those, live out a life that's been reformed by the person of Jesus Christ. And very graphically, again, this week, God has reminded me that sometimes life is really hard, incredibly difficult, but that he says things like, I'll never leave you or forsake you. In the middle of your fire, I'm walking around with you. When you're in the depth of the valley, you don't have to fear. I'm there with you. Most of you, or many of you know by now that Mary's brother Jim passed away this week. And Jim was not just my brother-in-law, wasn't just my PE coach in the ninth grade. He was one of my closest friends. I was sharing with Phil Clark this morning, and Jim was a public figure. He wasn't just a member of, of my wife's family. Jim's well-known throughout this city. If you have not read the article at DailyMemphian.com about Jimmy Hines, you need to, to go read that article. Uh, it says it all. Stan played football for him. Peter knew him at ECS. Uh, just, just a godly man who did it right. And I'm asking you, I'm sharing this with you for a couple of reasons. One, to understand life sometimes just it, that very same, some of you know Dan Neal, who's been in our church for a little while. Dan and I had become good friends in a short period of time. Two floors down from where Jim passed away, Two floors up from where Jim passed away. Dan passed away less than 24 hours later in the same hospital. And uh, I'd been going to see him once a week and thought he was doing, he had stage four lung cancer. We knew he probably wasn't going to make it, but we didn't know it was going to be this soon. And, um, but God works good in the middle of those difficulties. And so my encouragement to you is when the world says to you, which is what we're going to look at in Psalm 115, when the world says to you, where's your God? Where was your God on 9-11? The problem of evil, the great question that's always been around in the hearts of, of men. If there is a loving God, why do bad things happen? We're standing up here <clears throat> at that hospital the other night. And we, I didn't, for, at first I didn't want to see Jim after he passed away. And then I said, no, no I do, I want to see him. And so I went back there to see him. And you suddenly realize, he, I know, I've been doing this a long time, I know he's not here. And I know that his, he's moved from his earthly tabernacle to his heavenly home. And I'm happy for him. But it's still hard. I heard from my wife. She'd gotten really close to her brother since their mom passed away. God worked the good out of that. Mary was not really, really close with Jim. But since her mom passed away, we saw Jim and Jane once a week, his wife. We spent time together. She'd gotten close with her brother. And Jim went out of his way to make that happen. 
God works good. And I didn't want to start out today so you're just like, man, what a bummer. No, I wanted to do it this way because what I want to share with you this week and next week is a personal devotion in my life. God constantly drives me back to the Psalms to just remind me, no matter what you think, Randy, I am. No matter what you're going through, I'm in it. No matter what you think's going to happen, I already know. I'm in tomorrow. I want you to trust me. I want you to know I'm going to take care of you. I'm not going to let you down. I'm not going to leave you abandoned. You may feel like you're alone, but you're never alone. I am your father. I love you. I'm going to take care of you. Where's your God? He's wherever you are. Who's your God? Everything you need. And so for the next couple of weeks, I want to share that with you. Leading into a series of messages that I think the Lord wants me to share on the nature of who our dad is. I joked with you last week, I think I'm going to call the series, Who's Your Daddy? Because <laughs> I think we need to be reminded at times who our daddy is. We've been going through pictures since Jim passed away. We've been going through pictures. And last night, Andy hands me a picture of me and my dad. I have very few pictures of my father. We were not close. Uh, and he handed me a picture of me and my dad. And we both had, I'm a master at this, but I never saw it with my dad. But we both had these goofy looks on our face, you know, mocking for the camera. And I took that picture because I'd never seen my dad like that, thought about it. And that picture's now on my desk at home. Because it's going to remind me, who's your daddy? Maybe you and your earthly daddy, like me, weren't close. But when I got saved in 1970, God became my daddy. And even though my earthly father, we were not tight. I had the greatest father a man could ever have. Some of you are blessed with, with great fathers on earth. And my dad wasn't, we got close at the end of his life. God did that. And I'm so glad that he did. And that, that last year as he suffered and died, we got to spend time together. Time we talk about things we never talked about, like fighting in World War II. That fascinated me, and he would finally talk about it. Things like that. I realized a lot of things, a lot of mistakes I'd made, even as a Christian young man, realizing that you're the Christian. How do you think your dad responds when you don't want anything to do with him? That's wrong. You seek him out. You go out of your way to have a relationship with your father. It's important. And I'm so glad I did that. I had to go to a beer joint and hang out with him to do it, but I did. I still remember his face the first time I walked into Willow Road Inn on Getwell. About noon, so I could catch him before he'd had too much to drink. And I hate to say this, but some of you already know it. He, I walk in the door. If you've ever been in a beer joint, I know none of you have. But if you've ever been in one, <laughs> we'll share personal testimonies later. <laughs> There's only one person in the room I know I know's never been in one, and I'm married to her. But I remember walking, and I'd been in that place many times as a kid to go get my father to take him home, my brother and I, many, many times. We were Slim's boys. Nobody even knew his name. He was just Slim. 
we were Slim's boys. We came to get him to take him home. And when I walked in there, I was about 30 on staff of the church, and God had convicted me, you got to reach out to your father. So I just walked in, and he looks up wherever he was sitting. He sees me standing in the doorway like Clint Eastwood walking in the door. Like, oh, you, you've ever been in one, it's all light behind you, and it's all black ahead of you. you can't. And there's a shuffle. I knew there was a shuffleboard table in there somewhere because I'd played shuffleboard on that many times as a kid. I knew that was in there. That's all I knew. And I hear this, this guy say, Cabbage Head? What are you doing in here? And I said, well, that's my dad. I don't know where he is. And we just sat and talked. He thought somebody had died or something really bad had happened for me, to, for me to show up there. And we just began to talk. And in time, he quit drinking. And I discovered I liked my dad. I got my sense of humor from him. I got my anal retentiveness from him. He used to line his medicine bottles up a certain way, and you better not touch them. And you go into my house right now, I got a bag, and my medicine bottles are in that bag. It's a certain procedure I go through every morning, and you better not touch my, my bag of pills. Just like I take a gout pill every day, I used to laugh at my dad. Why do you take gout? That's an old man's disease. I take a gout pill every day now, and thank God I got one. Because if you ever had gout, you don't want it but once. Here's my point in all of that. Two things. Your God, your daddy, loves you, will always be there for you. There are things you don't understand in this life and in this world that you will not understand until you meet your daddy face to face, as Jim did this week. Those questions will be answered then. But in the interim, he loves you. And then on a personal level, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Please pray for Mary and her family. And please pray for me Thursday morning at 11 o'clock. Thank you, Bill. I want to do this funeral because I want to honor this man. But it will be really hard to get through. And I know what you guys will pray for me and God will handle it. Like we used to joke with Donnie Curlin, just give him a microphone, let him cry for 15 minutes. And then take up an offering and the help group be taken care of. <laughs> and that's how it got started. That's literally how it got started. Donnie wanted to share and I said, you sure you can do it? Yeah, yeah. And just stood right there and cried for 15 minutes and then it was all done. All right, let's pray and then we're going to get into God's word. Father, we thank you that you're, you're God and that we're not... Lord, I'm so comforted every time I open your word and spend time with you alone and you remind me over and over in different ways, circumstantially and through the word and through the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit that, I, that you're my dad. Abba, Father, Daddy, you're going to take care of me. I know that. So, Lord, what I pray for today, what I pray for Thursday morning, is that you will be honored in what is said. Jesus will be glorified in everything that's done. And that people will be motivated to leave and to live for and share who their daddy is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Psalm 115. Where's your God? Let me kind of walk through this a little bit today. And as we look at another year, another decade, 
in my life, again, as I said, this is a personal devotion for me. That God, I, I constantly am driven back to the Psalms and like to meditate on them and read them and think about them and pray over them and how can I applicably change something in my life. And then the question in this one, the great question, is being asked by non-believers, the children of Israel. They're mocking them and saying, where's your God? How come he's not doing great things like he used to do? Where is he? And I think in our culture today and in our lives, a lot of times we encounter people and their question is, where's your God? How come he's not doing something about this or that? Where's your God? So as we look at another year, specifically, for us individually as Christians, for Christ church, Marcus had shared with us back in October this idea of each one reach one so that we can ultimately teach one. Here's my challenge to you, and I want to start this first Sunday in January, that you start praying, just praying. Lord, who's that one person that I can personally reach out to and introduce them to Jesus Christ? Doesn't mean that they're going to get saved because you talk to them. That's not the goal. The goal is for you to reach out to them, pray for them, and don't stop praying. Lord, put that person on my heart. Don't stop praying for that individual and look, ask God for opportunities to reach out to that person. And it may be just as simple as inviting them to be part of your church family so that you can begin to love them. They can be part of what's going on and be loved, taught, hear the gospel. And then maybe you get the opportunity to share who your daddy is with them, who your savior is. So the world asks the question, where's your God? What I want us to do is think about that. Who is our God as we begin to look at him? Why is it so personal for us as Christians? You get to Psalm 115, let me get a little bit of the context and the background of Psalm 115. It's part of what's called the Hallel, and it it was sung by Jews at Passover every year when we celebrate, we call Easter, that time of year. As they celebrated the Passover, this psalm was sung along with 114 through 18. They were sung at different points in, at Passover to celebrate the Exodus from Egypt. The Exodus was when God brought the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, Egypt miraculously set them free physically, and then gave to them, said to them, here's the promised land, here's where you're going. It gave them the law, took them, headed toward the promised land. Psalm 114 was also sung at Passover. We don't know who wrote Psalm 115. It's not one of David's. It's not one of Asaph's. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know for sure when it was written. What I want to do, what I want to start with is let's read Psalm 114, as we get into Psalm 115. So let's start in Psalm 114. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became God's sanctuary and Israel his dominion. Remember, if you know Judah and Israel, the nation of Israel was divided into into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern. The northern was called Israel, the southern was called Judah, Corporately, yes, it was all called Israel, but it was also Judah and Israel. The sea saw it and fled, the Red Sea. 
Jordan turned back. The red part of the Red Sea, the Jordan River. The mountains skipped like lambs, the little hills like lambs. Lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? Red Sea. O Jordan, that you turned back. O mountains, that you skipped like lambs. O little hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water at Meribah, the flint into a fountain of waters. So Psalm 114. So these the great things that God has done. Miraculously, he set them free. They would sing it and celebrate it. But he went, had Moses go before Pharaoh and showed him over and over who God is. Told Moses, my name is I Am. And then he would show Pharaoh, I Am. And they got to the Red Sea and he showed Israel again. He parted it. They went across on dry land. He showed them. He showed Pharaoh's army when he pulled the sea back and drowned the the army in the Red Sea. I am. I'm the God over nature. I'm the God, the mountains, the, the hills. I'm God over the universe. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. I am. So you get to Psalm 115. As we said, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written. But as you read it and begin to understand it, it was probably written after the Jews came back from the Babylonian captivity, which began in 605 B.C. They come back from Babylon. Cyrus, king of Persia, allows them to go back. And they're going, this is Judah, the southern kingdom, and they're going to rebuild Jerusalem. And the temple had been leveled and just barren land. They now go back into the land, which is surround, they're surrounded by pagans, particularly the Samaritans. And they're going to rebuild Jerusalem, and they're going to rebuild the temple and become God's children again in their land, as opposed to being in the pagan land of Babylon, where they've been for 70 years as a result of their own rebellion. They're trying to rebuild, and they're constantly being attacked, mocked, thwarted by the pagans that are around them. They're all idol worshipers. We'll see that as we walk through this. So look at verse 1 of chapter 15, Psalm 115. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, the children of Israel, Judah, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. They've come back to the land. Only like 50,000 came back out of millions that went to Babylon. A remnant small number comes back to rebuild. They're attempting to do that. You can read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Those books in your Bible, historical books, are the story of when they came back to rebuild the, the temple first, and then Jerusalem, Ezra and Nehemiah. They're trying to do that, and they're being thwarted, stopped, mocked by the Samaritans and others, trying to stop them. And so the question is asked, look at verse 2, why should the Gentiles or the nations say, so, where's their God? You can see that in Ezra and Nehemiah. Where's their God? So the psalmist is crying out to God. And again, they sing this at Passover, celebrate the great exodus. In Psalm, 150, Psalm 114, the context leading into it is that God, you've done these amazing things, part of the Red Sea. We walked across a dry land. Uh, you drowned the Egyptian army in that same Red Sea, uh, the Jordan River. We went into the, all of those things that you did. 
incredible. Now we're back. And nothing exciting like that's happening. And the pagans are laughing at us. And they're mocking us. They're saying, where's your God now? So here's the psalmist cry, verse 1. This is so important to understand. He's saying, God, I want you to vindicate your name. God, show these pagans who God is. And notice the way he puts it. This is really important. Verse, the very first phrase in Psalm 115 is what? Not unto us. Not unto us, O Lord. Says it twice, Hebrew, Hebrew parallelism, emphasis. Not unto us, not unto us. In other words, God, please do this for your fame. Please do this for your glory. Please do this so the world and the nations will know who the great I am is. Don't do it because we deserve it, because guess what? We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But they need to know who you are, Father, God. They need to know. So we're not asking you, Psalmist, well, we're not asking you to do this because we deserve it. We don't. Do it because of your nature. Do it because of who you are. Let them know. When they say, where is your God? You could say, I'm here. I am. So the first point that he makes about his God is that he is alone in glory. He's alone in in glory. They had been in Babylon as a result of their punishment. That was their punishment for the result of their sin and their rebellion and not learning about the ten northern tribes. God sent them into the Assyrian captivity for their rebellion, for they're not doing what God wanted them to do. They didn't learn from their ten tribes' northern brethren, and so they end up in Babylon for their own sin, their own rebellion. He's saying, we know we're not worthy. It's not about us. Lord, please glorify your name. We don't want it to be about us. We want it to be about you. In the book of Isaiah, God says this. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. For my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? So an applicable point for us to understand, the first of the Ten Commandments is this. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You will have what? No other gods, plural, ahead of me. I will not give my glory to another. What does glory mean? It means honor. Worthiness, correct definition of who your dad is, who your God is. Later, the prophet is, or around the same time, the prophet Ezekiel says this. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, nations being non-Jewish entities, the Canaanites, when they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name, God says. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. 
But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. They did not honor God as God, and the pagans didn't see God. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you've profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. End quote. God speaking to Ezekiel. And I hope you notice in that quote, God repeated it several times. My name Israel has profaned. My name Israel has profaned. My name Israel has profaned among the nations. And here's the applicable principle for us as believers. God wants us to have one simple goal with our lives, individually and corporately, that the world will see correctly who our God is. That's what it means to glorify him. Not who they think he is, not who I want him to be, who he is. That's what we're going to be talking about get into this sermon series. All the, er- the character attributes of our God that make him unique, that make him God. And there are many. I don't know how many of them we will get to, because Jesus may come back, but there are many. His immutability, his transcendence, his imminence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his, his, his love. His holiness, his righteousness, on and on. What sets him apart is God. What was happening historically in Psalm 115 is they came back. The pagans no longer feared God as they had like around the time of Egypt when they left then. And so they had been carried off to Babylon. But read the book of Daniel. One of my favorite, probably my favorite book in the Old Testament to read, not for prophetic reasons, just the story. And here they are, carried off to a, a pagan land. Where basically they're going to be indoctrinated to being Babylonians. Their land is gone. Their temple is gone. And yet, over and over in the book of Daniel, what you see is king after king after king, emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Belshazzar, Belshazzar, on and on, You see him confronted with the God of Daniel, who, by the way, was 15 years old when it all began. 15. Becomes the second most powerful man in the world. We talked about that at Christmas. The leader of the wise men. The wise men came to him because he was the only one that could interpret the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. And he became the second most powerful man in the world as a 15-year-old kid. And what you see in the book of Daniel, and the message of the book of Daniel, is that there is only one kingdom that will ultimately survive, and it's the kingdom of the Most High God. And so Nebuchadnezzar, we will see, ultimately says, whoa, that's Babylonian, whoa. The God of Daniel is God, not me. The God of the Hebrews is God. I need to wake up. And my nation needs to wake up. And you see it over 
and over and over again in the book of Daniel. Just read it this week. It's only 12 chapters. Just read it. Forget prophecy. Forget trying to figure out what the statues and all that is. Just read it as a devotion. You'll come away from it going, wow, look at my dad. Look who he is. Look what he did through that little kid. Look what he did through that man for 70 years, honoring God. I love Daniel 1.8, that verse. The Bible says that Daniel 1.8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself before his God. So he proceeded to live a life of integrity and see what God's going to do. He did incredible things. Incredible things. Because Daniel was willing. So back to Psalm 115. Our God is alone in glory. In other words, he alone is worthy. We talked about this when we were looking at the lamb at Christmas. Worthy is the lamb. Because he alone, he alone can open the book of judgment because he is worthy. So our God is alone in glory. Where is your God? Number one, he's alone in glory because of his mercy. Verse one, to your name give glory because of your mercy. For the Septuagint translation of the loving kindness as it's translated, as you run this word through scripture, it means grace. It means grace. God gives us things like eternal life, things like hope, things like peace in your heart, things like a reason for existence, a purpose and meaning in life. Gives us a true understanding of what it means to love, to be loved, and to love. Grace gives it to us. He is alone in glory because he gives us his mercy. He shows us something we don't deserve. I've shared this story with you before, but it really is apropos for this moment, for this point. Most of you, if not all of you, know who C.S. Lewis is, the great Christian author, apologist, and this conference going on, and all these theologians were sitting around in a room discussing what makes Christianity unique, why is it different? C.S. Lewis walked in the room and said, what are, you talking, what are you boys talking about? They said, we're just trying to figure out what makes Christianity unique. He said, oh, it's real simple. Grace. He just kept walking. Grace. We can't earn our way into God's kingdom. He offers it freely, freely because he punished Jesus Christ for it. So I could be righteous in Christ. It's his gift He's alone in glory because no one else can do that. And we'll see as we walk through this. Every other God that's ever existed or exists in your mind now, in the mind of man now, is created by man. God alone is self-existent. That's one of his attributes. He's self-existent. He's eternal. Everything else is created. By definition, if I draw a picture, like my grandchildren, most of them love to draw. They draw a picture, who created the picture? They created it and then drew it. So who's greater, the picture laying on my counter at home or little Lydia who drew it? Of course she is. She's the creator of the picture. If I make an idol 
by definition, who's the God in that relationship? If I make it, who's God? I am. When our relationship to the one true God, the God of Scripture, our daddy, he made us. By definition, he's greater than us. And then he just extends to us a hand of mercy, loving kindness, grace, because he is God. He alone can do that. Secondly, because of your truth, because of your truth, you're alone in glory. John 1, that great prologue to the Gospel of John, we read at Christmas, we quoted again, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And if you keep reading in John chapter 1, it says this, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He has manifested God to us or made evident God to us. Jesus said things like, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I, before Abraham was, I am. That'd be a hard thing to do if you just been on the planet 33 years. How could he exist before Abraham? Because he was God. Before Abraham was, I am. Self-existent. He's alone in glory because he extends grace and loving kindness to us. He's alone in glory because he alone can offer you truth. Where Jesus himself said again in John 8, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Truth will set you free. And I am the way, as he would say later in the Upper Room Discourse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot get to the Father but by me. Why? Because he's the truth. Look at Psalm 117 while you're here. Psalm 117, probably the next page in your Bible. This is the shortest of all the Psalms. So you say, I'm going to memorize the Psalms. Just start with this one. Shortest one. Look at the great truths to meditate on in Psalm 117. Two verses. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Notice it's addressed to what group of people? Gentiles. Not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wants the nations to know that God and come to them. What they were supposed to do when they went into the promised land was to be a witness. Instead of adopting paganism and becoming an idol- idolaters themselves and ending up in Assyria and Babylon, they were supposed to be a witness. So he says in Psalm 117, the psalmist says, meditate on these two great things the God of truth, the God of mercy, the God of eternality is there. Without grace, without mercy, we're doomed. We don't have any hope. But because of his truth, we can endure. Not just eternal life, not just going to heaven when you die, but right now, we persevere in difficult circumstances. Why? Because our Savior is the truth. He keeps his word. He will do what he says he's going to do. And he'll do what he promises. 
So when Jesus said, no one will ever take you out of my hand, I can hang on to that. When he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. When he says, go into all the world and make disciples of me, and I will be with you always. I know he's going to be with me always. He's going to be with us always. Second point on your handout. He's not only alone in glory, where is your God? He is absolute God over everything. But let's start with, he's absolute God over man's universe. Look at verse 3. But the pagans say, where's your God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. So what you're going to see in verses 3 through 8, and we're not going to cover all of this today, what you're going to see in verses 3 through 8 is a contrast that the psalmist is giving between our God, who is alone in glory, and who is absolute. You're going to see a contrast between our God and the God of the pagans, the gods, plural, of the pagans, their idols. So let's look at verse 3. Our God, first of all, is where? In heaven. Where are the gods of the pagans? By definition, their idols they've made, where are they? They're on earth. They're on earth. What does heaven mean, metaphorically, picturally? Literally, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But what's the message being sent here? Our God is in heaven. Your God is on earth. Our God is eternal. Your God is temporary. Our God is over all. Your God is just down here where you've made him and where you've put him. Whatever temple you might erect to him, wherever you choose to worship him, it's just right there. Because as we see, he's not going anywhere. He doesn't have the capacity to do so. Our God is supreme. Our God is omnipotent. Our God is absolute ruler over everything. He is infinite. He's not confined. He is omnipresent. Look at the end of verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He is unstoppable. He's totally wise, totally righteous, totally good, and totally fair. You never have to worry about him making a mistake, letting you down. He's absolute. In Psalm 103, David says this. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Job 42 He says this, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. David, Job, Isaiah chapter 46 says this, remember the former things of old. I am God, there is no other. I'm God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will bring it to pass. I've purposed it. I will do it. In Isaiah 55, he writes this, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. My thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return and does not return, do not return there, but water the earth, 
they make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So you've got David, Job, Isaiah, and then finally we talked about this earlier, but I want to focus on this one for just a moment. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar says this. At the, end of the, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. This is the king of Babylon. And my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his own his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? And that was after God had gotten his attention by turning him into an animal for a period of time. Just letting him crawl around. Nebuchadnezzar woke up and said, I perceive that the most high God, the God of Daniel, is God. Is God. He's our God. He's absolute ruler over all of man's universe. And what we're going to look at next week is that he's also absolute ruler over every God that we might create, all our idols. All our idols. What we think are worthy of worship, God is absolute ruler over them. There is nothing else worthy of our worship except God. That's who your daddy is. I hope that encourages you to realize when you read the Bible, your dad is talking to you, saying, don't forget who your dad is and what he will do in your life. You trust him. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, as we close out our time together today, we simply... I want to thank you for being our dad. That when we hurt, we don't know what to do, we don't even know how to respond. You tell us in Scripture, there are even times we don't know how to pray and the Holy Spirit groans for us. We're grateful. We just thank you for Jesus, for our salvation that you gave to us because you are God, you're alone in glory. I pray we would, as Christians, that would be our focus. I want to glorify God. I want people to see who my dad is, how he's changed my life, what he's done for me, what he's doing in my family, what he's doing in my church, what he's doing in my world, a world that's so messed up. And God, you're sovereign over it. So we pray, pray for revival in our individual lives, in our country, in our world, that we'd be in the midst of seeing you do great things. So Lord, we commit our time as we close today and get ready to leave, that we would just go out to glorify Jesus, glorify our Father, let people know who our dad is. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.